everybody's presence today. Looks like we've got a good crowd here this morning. Uh, we may have some that are still out of town over the Thanksgiving holidays, but uh, we've got some that are here for the Thanksgiving holidays, and we're really appreciative of that. Uh, we had a good visit with my family over in uh, the Atlanta area, and I uh, trust that you did as well. If you're able to, to get together with family, uh, that's a uh, that's valuable time, isn't it, that we can get together with family and spend a little bit of time together. We're kind of spread out in our family, and I think a lot of families are that way. So when you get a chance, you, you appreciate it. I know we've got some that are traveling through this morning, and tell you what, if we, we appreciate a great deal, people that will take the time, as they're traveling, take the time to stop and spend a little while in worship together on the Lord's Day. It's very encouraging. It's a great example for us to see, and we appreciate that a lot. And we hope that that's our habit as well, as we're traveling to take the time on the Lord's Day to stop and worship with His people. And so uh, that's encouraging to us as well. Tell you a little bit about uh, a man that uh, I knew as a child. He was a member of the congregation where we attended. My dad was the preacher there. I think the congregation was less than 100 people. It might have been 60, 70, maybe something like that. And uh, uh, this particular man was not there all the time, if my memory serves me correctly. He would go through stretches where he was at worship pretty regularly. And then he'd go through stretches where he wasn't there. I'm going to call him Brother Green. That wasn't his name. But you know, with the internet and things like that, you don't know who's going to be listening. And so I don't want to unnecessarily hurt anybody's feelings, just in case somebody is listening. But I'm going to call him Brother Green. Well, Brother Green was, he was an older man. And I'm a little bit, I'm a young boy. I'm 11 or 12 years old. And, but, but he seemed to be an, an older man. And he, he looked a little rough. His skin, his skin looked old. Uh, his, his clothes were not new. They, they were older, kind of well-worn. Uh, they didn't fit him very well. They didn't fit just exactly right. And so he was, uh, he, he was a man that I, I just remember well in those ways. I don't think Brother Green had a car because people would go and pick him up for worship when he, when he came. And we took our turn with that as well. We would go and we'd pick up Brother Green and we would take him back and forth to worship. Well, one day as we were riding along in the car on our way to worship, we're, we're all talking, my mom and dad, and I've got three sisters in case you don't know. So there's seven of us in the car, if I remember correctly. And Mr. Green, we're just talking about different things. Well, he starts reciting the alphabet. But he, he recites it backward. Instead of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, it's Z, Y, X, W, V, U, T, on to A. Now, I had to write that down to get it right. And he said it as fast backward as I could say it forward. And I was, I was just amazed at that. How, how, did, how did he do that? I think he could rattle off the presidents in order. Just, just you know, just, they weren't written down just off the top of his head. And that, I was impressed by that. Well, on our way home from services that day, I asked my dad about it. And, you know, how, how, does, how does Brother Green, how does he know that? You know, did you hear him say that? I, how does he know that? And my dad said, well, I think Brother Green spends a good bit of his time trying to keep his mind occupied. And then it clicked with me. You see, 
Brother Green had a problem with alcohol. And that's why he wouldn't be there sometimes. And it wasn't unusual when he was there, he would come forward to, before the congregation. And he says, you know, I've been struggling again. I want everybody to, to pray for me. And, and, and of course, of course we, we would. And uh, it just kind of made sense to me that there were those times in Brother Green's life when he was being tempted and the temptation was strong and he's doing just about anything he can do just to keep his mind occupied so he wouldn't yield to the temptation to, to drink. We, we would call him an alcoholic today. I'm, I'm sure that's what he was. Even though I was 11 or 12 years old, I don't know that I was familiar with that term at the time. Still, as I look back at it, I, I know that that must be what he was. He really, really struggled with that temptation. How about you? You, you ever struggle with temptation? You ever struggle with sin? And it may be that you just struggle with temptation in general. Uh, just uh, uh, maybe a number of attitudes or actions or words that you have a hard time with. And, and you just struggle to try to overcome those temptations. Or it might be a particular sin, like Brother Green. It might be this one specific sin that does so easily beset us. That, that we do pretty well sometimes and we go for pretty long stretches and we're able to resist and, and we don't yield to that temptation. And it's like Brother Andy Mills said the other night, sometimes these things kind of happen in waves. <laughs> and then we'll go for a period of time where we, we do yield, we do succumb. And then we just struggle with that and we wrestle with that. Sometimes we might become disgusted with ourselves. I don't know, you ever feel that way? I can't believe that I've fallen back into that again. <laughs> and we get discouraged with those kinds of things. I imagine many of us have. If you have, if you've struggled with sin or you wrestled with sin or in any way these kinds of things kind of resonate with you, well then, this sermon is for you today. I want to look at one particular verse. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 a passage of great encouragement for those of us who struggle with temptation and sin. Therefore, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a passage. <laughs> Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not a proverb. <laughs> and so there was a great deal that said leading up to this verse, and a great deal that said following the verse. And so we want to look at all of that. We want to look at what Paul has to say leading up to this verse, and then some of what he has to say following the verse. But none of that detracts from the great encouragement contained in the verse. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's back up a little bit. Let's go back into chapter 7, and let's take a look at what Paul has to say leading up to this statement in chapter 8 and verse 1. In chapter 7, Paul describes a conscientious, devout, pious Jew who wants to keep the law. He struggles with sin, but he wants to keep the law. Here's this temptation to do what he knows is contrary to the law. He wants to keep the law, but the temptation is strong, and so he's just wrestling with that and struggling with that, kind of like Brother Green must have done. Now, Paul knows all about this struggle because it's true of himself. And he uses himself throughout the passage, he uses himself as an example, and he speaks in the first person. 
I did this. This happened to me. I'm experiencing that. And so here's this pious Jew, this devout Jew, Paul, who knows that his relationship with God depends on keeping the law. In fact, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, It's not hearers of the law that will be justified before God, but doers of the law. So Paul knows very well that as a Jew, it's those who do the law. Not just hear it, not just know it, not able to recite it, but those who actually do it. Now Paul would know passages like Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are given for the second time to that second generation At the end of the chapter, we read this. You shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. You are to do the law. Keep the law. Walk according to the ordinances of the law, and it will go well with you. Now, now if you don't, Well, then things are not going to go well. And of course, that's quite an understatement, isn't it? And so Paul is very serious about keeping the law. He knows his relationship with God. He knows that life, spiritual life, depends upon him keeping the law. But it's a constant struggle for him. (laughs) He may go through stretches where he does pretty well, but there may be stretches where he doesn't do so well. Now, what's the problem here? Is the problem the law? Is that the problem? Is that what makes things so difficult? Well, the problem with sin is not the law. In fact, in verse 12 of Romans chapter 7, Paul says, The law is holy and righteous and good. The law is a good thing. The law is a holy thing. The law is a righteous thing. And so the problem with sin is not the law. Is the law too demanding? I mean, as we look at the law, or a pious Jew looked at the law, somebody like Paul looked at the law, could he say, God, you know, you're just asking too much here. This is just too demanding. No human being could ever do these kind of things. Or does the law ask the impossible? Well, well, no, we can't do that. That's just beyond our ability to do that. Is it too demanding to say, thou shalt not covet? Is Is that just too demanding from God? Uh, on, uh, as a law for the Jews? Or is it impossible to love your neighbor as yourself? Is that impossible? <laughs> and so you can see, now, the problem is not the law. In fact, the law should help us with sin. For example, it identifies sin for us. And so Paul might not know that it's a sin to covet, but the law says, thou shalt not covet. And so now he knows Now the law has helped him in his relationship with God because it's identified sin for him. The purpose of the law is to keep people away from sin. Now here, here's the law. This is what sin is. Now you're informed. Now if you don't do these things, or if you do these things, whichever the law requires, either not doing a thing or doing it, now your relationship with God is good and you will live. In fact, God says here, and Paul says here in this particular passage in verse 10, that the law is meant to produce life. And so the law helps us with sin, or it would help people with sin, or help identify sin for them. 
It should help keep them away from sin and keep them in fellowship with God. It concerns or, or uh, instructs people concerning right and wrong. The law is a good thing. And it's God being good toward His people. And so here God is in a relationship with His people. And uh, He knows what kind of people they are. He knows their character and their tendencies. And so He says, I'm going to give them a law and that's going to help them avoid wrong and do right. And so you say, the problem is not the law. <laughs> if the problem is not the law, what is it? Why, why do we struggle so much if it's not the law? Well, a couple of things we'll point out. One is, we live in a body of flesh. Look at this passage, Romans chapter 7, and look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage, to sin. Now the law is spiritual. It guides our spiritual lives. It brings us into spiritual fellowship with God. But part of that, I'm, I'm a spirit, of course, but, but, part, but I live in a body of flesh. And he emphasizes that point elsewhere as well. Look at verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the problem is that the law tries to get us to govern our flesh. I live in the flesh. And I experience fleshly temptation, fleshly impulses, fleshly urges. Look at chapter 8 and verse 7 to understand maybe more clearly what the flesh is. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And so that's part of the problem. Maybe a completely spiritually minded person could, could control his impulses, could do well, could keep the law. The problem is, I live in the flesh. I live in a body. And I'm trying to control the urges and impulses of, of the body. And every time I think I'm making progress in spiritual development. Every time I think I'm doing pretty well, every time I think I'm advancing in spiritual progress, the flesh pulls me back in. <laughs> and so it's a constant struggle. It's a constant battle between flesh and spirit. Now the other problem with this, the other thing that makes this more di so, so difficult is that Satan knows these things. <laughs> now he knows God's law. And he knows we live in the flesh. And he uses those things against us. And so he uses the law of God against people who want to try to do what's right. Look at verse 11 of Romans chapter 7. Sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Sin, the word sin representing really Satan, who is the source of sin. And so we could say, Satan, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. That reminds me of what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? God had said, here's the law. You can't eat of this forbidden fruit. Now, Satan knew the law of God, and he also knew the fleshly uh, side of Adam and Eve. And so he used those two elements to draw them away from God. And so sin or Satan took advantage of the commandment, 
appealed to the flesh. Remember, Eve saw that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. And used those two things against her and against her husband to draw them away from God. And so Satan knows that a man has a problem with lust. And so what does he do? Well, he puts billboards with scanty-clad women all around him. When the guy turns on the TV, what does he see in the commercials? Again, he sees, you know what he sees. And when he gets on his computer, these pop-up ads, that, well, you know what. And so he puts him in a situation where he's surrounded by objects, by people, by things that would arouse his desire. And so the law is good. Don't lust. That's good. That's a sin. Don't do it. Keep away from that. Now Satan knows that that's God's law, but he also knows we live in the body, and so he uses those two things against us. He knows a woman has a problem with impatience, and so what does he do? Well, he puts her in situations, or at least raises situations around her that stir her impatience. And the result, of course, is a titanic struggle to bring himself under the law. He's fighting his flesh. He wants to do what's right. He's fighting temptation. Just this constant titanic struggle to bring himself under the law of God, which he very much wants to do. But he's not very successful at it. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold into bondage under sin. It just seems like I'm a slave to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. <laughs> and so you can see that struggle. You know, I'm, I do the very thing that I don't want to do. In my mind, I know it's not all right, the right thing to do, but I find myself doing it, doing it anyway. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members." Got this titanic struggle, this difficult struggle going on within us, within our lives, Paul says. We do the very thing that we don't want to do. He really is, applies it to himself. I'm doing the very thing that I don't want to do. and I try to do the law, but I, I'm, not very, I'm not very successful at it. And so what, what's the conclusion? Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He feels the weight of condemnation upon him. He concludes that I am a wretched man. I'm trying to serve two masters. What, what, who, who can help me? I need some help here. <laughs> who can deliver me from this body of death? Well, that brings us then to chapter 8 in verse 1, doesn't it? There's the conclusion, wretched man that I am. Then we get into chapter 8. And we read this statement, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is describing himself under the law, under the law of Moses, trying to be justified, made right with God by keeping the law of Moses. But now in Christ there is no condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain that a little bit. Let's read a few verses here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you're like me, you'd have to read that several times over to kind of get the, <laughs> get the flow of thought. But maybe we can explain it a little bit. Christ took on flesh. See, part of our problem is the flesh, isn't it? And Christ took on flesh. Not only did Christ take on flesh, He lived under the law. Remember Galatians chapter 4? He was born of woman, born under the law. And so Christ came and He took on really those things that were contrary to us, and contrary to our desire, the flesh and the law. In a sense, he said, all right, Satan, <laughs> you're trying to draw these people away from God. I'm going to help them, and I'm going to fight you on your own ground. I'm going to come into your house. I'm going to go on your home court, and I'm going to take you on, and I'm going to defeat you. And in that way, I'm going to help, help these people. And so Christ takes on our flesh, like us, he sub subjects himself to the law. He experiences every temptation, yet with, without sin. The Bible is very clear that Christ became flesh. John chapter 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He goes on to talk about that a little bit. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you go over to 1 John chapter 1, you'll find even more information about that. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. We've seen Him, we looked at Him, we touched Him, we felt Him. He has come in the flesh. He was subjected also to every temptation. Remember Hebrews chapter 4, the writer is discussing Christ serving as our high priest. And he says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came in the flesh, and He was subjected to every form of temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, Jesus experienced it all. Now, I may not know specifically at what time and under what circumstances and how the temptation manifested itself, but I know Jesus was tempted with the desire of the flesh. And I know He was just tempted with the desire of the eyes. And I know He was tempted with the pride of life or the glory, vain glory of life. And yet, He did not sin. We saw that from Hebrews chapter 4, but we also see it from 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so Jesus came, he took on our flesh. That's, that's part of our problem with sin, isn't our flesh? Jesus took it on. And he submitted to the law. That's part of our problem with sin. It's, it's the law. 
Satan uses the law. So Satan used the law against Christ. And yet Christ triumphed in every situation, every instance of that. And doing that made it possible for Jesus to do then some things for us. He became an offering for sin. We see that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And so having a fleshly body and abstaining from sin qualifies him to be an offering for sin. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, another uh, passage in the book of 1 Peter chapter, I think I said chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Listen to what Peter says. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Jesus comes and He offers His body as a sacrifice for our sin, an unblemished and unstained sacrifice for our sin. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so He made an offering for sin, taking our sin on His body, a fleshly body like ours, and sacrificing it as an atonement for our sin. That Christ took on flesh and was tempted in every way but didn't sin enables Him to be an example that we should follow in His steps. Peter also comments on that. He says in verse 21, You've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. And so Jesus was like me. He had a body like mine. He wanted to do right, and yet the law, you know, the, the law was used against him. But he withstood the temptation every single time. And that tells me that I can withstand the temptation every single time. And so he becomes an example for us that we should follow in his steps. He's also to help those who are tempted it's Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he, in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so because he was tempted like I am, he can help me. He can sympathize with me and he can encourage me in my experiences with sin. And so my situation very much like Paul as he thinks about himself under the law. You know, we live under God's law as well. Not the law of Moses, but we are expected to do what's right, and we are expected to live holy lives. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1? Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all the defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so, and so I might not be under that Old Testament law, but still in a relationship with God, I must cleanse myself of all unholiness. And that's a struggle sometimes. That's difficult sometimes. And sometimes I might get disgusted with myself and I might reach the conclusion that I'm like Paul, just a wretched man, and I need some help. Well, where can I get the help? Christ is the help. You see, He came in a body like mine. 
He endured all the temptation that I endure, yet without sin. He took my sin in His body on the cross and atoned for it. And so I can take advantage of that sacrifice. I can walk in His steps. And I can lean on Him to help me in those times of trial. Instead of being defeated by sin, Christ defeated sin. You can see how He defeated sin. And did so in the flesh. And the achievement that He uh, accomplished benefit us. Now, how, how is that so? How does what Christ accomplished on the cross benefit me? Well, when I accept the truth of the gospel of Christ, when I put my faith in Him and what He accomplished on the cross, by faith the benefits of the gospel come to me. When I say the benefits of the gospel, I mean the forgiveness of our sin. Our slates are wiped clean through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. That offering for sin, my record is wiped clean, my slate is wiped clean. That's what God requires of us, a clean slate. So because of what Christ has done, my ledger can be made clean. You see, if we're forgiven of sin, we're no longer under the condemnation of sin. If someone who committed a crime is pardoned, he's no longer condemned by the crime. He no longer lives in fear of the penalty that would otherwise come to him. Imagine you were accused of committing a crime. Let's say you even did commit the crime. And you go before the court and you're guilty. You're found guilty, but you're pardoned of it. Before the pardon, you're walking around, oh no, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to prison. Oh, you know, my, my future is, is, is terrible. And it, the pardon comes down and you go, oh man, that's great. <laughs> I'm set free. I'm not under the condemnation anymore. I'm released from it. Hallelujah. That's us, isn't it? You see, we've committed sin. We're, we're guilty of sin. And yet in Christ, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of, of that sin. And we're not under that weight of condemnation. That the weight of guilt has been lifted from us. We're no longer wretched men. But we've been set free. That, that's the terminology in Romans chapter 8. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We receive forgiveness of our transgressions by faith. The first and fundamental response to the grace of God. Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But biblical faith, as you can see, is an obedient faith, a faith that works, a faith that acts. Those are the words of James, faith without works is dead. It's a working faith. It's an obedient faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 11, that great passage that speaks of all those great men and women of faith. And we know that sometimes, we know sometimes the, the association and the correspondence between faith and their act. By faith, Noah being warned of God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, and, and so forth. And so biblical faith is an obedient faith to Jesus' gospel, not to our own thoughts, not to our own works. We've given up on that. We're turning to Christ, and we're putting our faith in Him and His work. And when His gospel asks us to do something, we do it. That's biblical faith. To receive forgiveness of sin, the gospel asks us 
to repent of our sin. Romans 6 and verse 2. How shall we who died to sin? That's repentance from sin, isn't it? We died to sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ asks us to confess our faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel of Christ asks us to be baptized. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We are buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the glory of, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I chose all those passages from the book of Romans on purpose. <laughs> see, Romans is held up as this great document encouraging faith alone. But see, Romans encourages us to die to sin. Romans encourages us to confess with the mouth. The book of Romans encourages us to be baptized as well. We do these things, we're forgiven, set free. And we can, like the Ethiopian, go on our way rejoicing. The condemnation is taken away. We've been pardoned. We're no longer guilty as we stand before God the judge. We're no longer wretched men. Do you feel the weight of condemnation because of your sin? Do you feel wretched? Because of your sin. You don't need to. There's good news. Christ, in Christ there is now no condemnation. But there's another element of Paul's discussion here that we want to think about a little bit. Paul adds that these blessings belong to those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, a person might conclude that after the initial pardon, a person can live carelessly, and there is no condemnation. But... That's not what Paul says, is it? There's no condemnation to those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so once we escape enslavement to the flesh, we're not to return to it. If by the Spirit we've been made free, as he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, if by the Spirit we've been made free from the bondage to the flesh, we must walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 14 First, chapter 8, verse 13, we must by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17, walk by the Spirit. So how do we do that? How do we walk by the Spirit? So I've obeyed those initial requirements of the gospel. I'm in Christ. I want to live in Christ. How, how, how do I continue? Well, walk by the Spirit. Well, how do I do that? Do I just rely on my feelings where, you know, I just feel like the Spirit is moving me in this direction? Or do we try to read the signs? You know, well, I'm, I'm looking and I'm looking for a sign that might indicate which way I should go. Well, I just doubt that the Spirit communicates to us in such a subjective way. And I think there are a lot of mistakes that have been made by seeking the Spirit's guidance in these ways. I think the answer is simple. As so much Bible study is, it seems, it's simple, isn't it? If we will do this, if we will read this, if we will learn this, and live by this, and live by it conscientiously, and live by it seriously, and do our best to do what we find in here, we will be led by the Spirit, won't we? If you do this, you will be led by the Spirit. And you won't have to worry about interpreting or misinterpreting the signs out there. <laughs> yeah. Just do this. 
this is revealed to us by the Spirit, do this. And we can be walking by the Spirit. In practical terms, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, Paul gives us some insight in Galatians chapter 5 as he contrasts the works of the flesh with the works of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Practical terms, those are the works of the flesh. But also describes the works of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Develop those. If you're serious about walking by the Spirit, develop the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll be well on our way. What should a person do who's, who's walking according to the Spirit when he stumbles? I'm doing my best. I'm walking according to the Spirit. I've learned, I'm learning what this says. I'm trying to put it into practice, but sometimes I stumble. And, and we all do from time to time. We all, what would a person who's walking according to the Spirit do in those situations? Overcome with anxiety? Is it time to panic? <laughs> ring my hand. Oh, no, ring my hands in despair. No. We simply repent. We confess our sin. God forgives us completely and forever. And so, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us that we are to confess our sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. Do you, know, do you know somebody who's walking according to the Spirit? You look at them, you know them well, you see what kind of people they are. You say, there's a man or a woman that's walking according to the Spirit. What do you think he does when he stumbles? He says, you know what, that was wrong of me. I'm going to ask God to forgive me, and I'm going to not do that anymore. <laughs> you see, that's part of walking according to the Spirit. Having as a part of our life regular self-examination, freely acknowledging our sin, and expressing a desire to do better. And then we go on our way rejoicing because, you see, the weight of condemnation is lifted. Because God forgives completely and forever. Now, the person that abandons Christ and persist in walking according to the flesh is in danger. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. It's, a, it's writing to Christians, if you've abandoned Christ and you're living according to the flesh, you're in danger. But if you're living according to the Spirit, including that regular self-examination, that acknowledgement of sin when we stumble, that dedication to do better and do what's right, the weight of sin, the weight of condemnation is lifted from us. See, there's no condemnation. Now, to those who are in Christ, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, I don't know if Brother Green ultimately won his battle with alcohol or not. I don't know. I don't know how that story ended. We moved away, and I'm not sure what happened with him. He may have struggled all his life. And we may struggle with sin as well. You see, it's when we stop struggling that we're in trouble, isn't it? You know, it's when we stop struggling with sin. Now, that, that's a problem. But even when we struggle with sin, there's hope for us. It's in Christ. That's where, that's where the hope is. Because there's forgiveness in Christ. There's that removal of this weight of condemnation. So there's no condemnation. He has defeated sin for us and will deliver us from its bondage as well. 
I said it was an encouraging passage. <laughs> I hope you've gotten that idea from our discussion this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship and uh, to sing together and pray together and to remember your son's death for us on the cross, to remember those things together. Father, we're thankful for your word and uh, the good news that it contains for us. We're thankful that your son came in the likeness of sinful flesh, a body like ours. We're thankful that he endured every temptation, Father, that he resisted every, every form of temptation, every instance of temptation. We're thankful for that. We're thankful then that he, in his body, went to the cross and offered his body, sacrificed his body on the cross for our sin. We're thankful that he was able to bear our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and we might live to God. Help us, Father, to take advantage of this great act of grace that you've offered to us. Help us, Father, to put our faith and trust in Him, to help us to turn away from sin. Help us to boldly and courageously confess our sin. And Father, we pray that each one of us will be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins. Once we've done that, Father, we pray that we will walk according to this, the Spirit, that we will turn away from the flesh. But from time to time, Father, we may stumble. We offer no excuses for that, no defense for that. We simply acknowledge our failing and ask you to forgive, resolving not to practice those things any longer. We're so encouraged, Father, that you've promised to forgive us completely and forever, and that the weight of condemnation can be removed from us. Help us, Father, not to take that grace for granted, but use it to motivate us to greater and greater heights of spirituality. We look forward to the day, Father, when we will be in heaven with you, with all those who have gone before, forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here, you're subject to the invitation.